0: Hey there, and welcome to episode 29 of the Beneath the Sats podcast. I'm your host, Ron McKittrick, and joining me today on Halloween is 98.5 The Sports Hub radio host and WHDH field producer reporter Marshall Hook. Marshall, thanks again for joining me.
1: Uh, Not a problem. Happy to be here.
0: Now, first of all, Marshall, it is Halloween, so happy Halloween. Are you a big Halloween guy? Because I noticed you recently tweeted about coming from the Halloween store.
1: Uh, Yes, I am a big Halloween guy. Um, in that, uh, I definitely decorate the house for Halloween, but I do it day of and put it all up and take it all down all on the same day, which I'm not doing today because the town I live in is one of those that's delayed trick or treating until Saturday. So I was able to, uh, buy a little extra time, but, uh, my Saturday will be entirely spent doing up the house and preparing for, uh, for Halloween.
0: Oh, interesting. Do you have kids?
1: Uh, I have four of them. Yep. Uh, They're a little upset we haven't already decorated the house, but (laughs) I again explained to them that it's all uh, inside of one day, and that by the time trick-or-treating actually begins on Saturday, we will have probably the most decorated house on the block. (laughs)
0: Love it. So where are you from? Are you from the area initially? I feel like you're not from here. Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I was born and spent uh, the majority of my uh, formative years in New Jersey, which obviously is a little bit south of here. Uh, uh, Probably further south mentally, I think, than uh, it is geographically, as far as people of Massachusetts are concerned. I don't think they have great love for the Garden State. Uh, But I spent, (laughs) uh, spent the majority of my childhood there, but also Uh, spent four years in the middle living in Texas and another two years, uh, the last two years of my high school career were spent living uh, in Argentina, um, the big country down there in South America. We maintained our house in New Jersey and I still spent time in New Jersey, but uh, went to school for two years in Argentina. But when people ask where I'm from, the answer uh, easiest to give is New Jersey. How did you like your time in Argentina? Argentina was fantastic. It's not a country that I think um, uh, a lot of people are aware of or even know exists. I think it's a little bit easier now, you know, with the internet, like maps and geography is a little bit easier to kind of understand. And, you know, social media has made the world a smaller place. But I know that in the mid 80s, when I was moving to Argentina and I would tell people I was moving to Argentina, they wouldn't. Even know where it was, they're like, "Was that an island in Brazil, or you know, <laughs> what is it?" Oh well, no, it's the fifth largest country in the world. But yeah, okay, fine. Uh, it I I did not. You, there are not a lot of people, at least in the '80s, and I don't think it's different now. To be an American living in Argentina, you either had to be uh, the kid of a of an oil executive, uh, a military kid, or a missionary kid. You know like Christian missionaries. In my case, I was the oil uh, baron's kid. Um, But our school was very small, about 50 kids a class. And so uh, it was a great time. I had a great time living down there.
0: So I studied abroad in Florence, Italy for a semester. I was in San Diego after college for almost a year. For me, it always felt like a culture difference going to those places. Did it feel like a culture difference for you? Did you feel a sense of culture shock when you were there a couple of years?
1: Uh, It was dramatic. And in fact, you know, these days, if you travel, say to Europe, I'm sure your experience was that while it may be helpful when traveling uh, around Italy to know Italian, you really can get by with English in most places oh, yeah. in Europe. Not at all the case in Argentina. Like the number of people there who spoke English were very small, which should never be construed as a complaint. It's their country, you know? <laughs> right. like. Uh, but what it, it was, it was good in the long run in that it forced me to learn Spanish, but. You know, when I landed there on day one, despite the fact that we had taken a full year of of Spanish kind of intensive language, knowing that we were moving there, my family and I, um, it doesn't really take until you're forced to use it and you have to speak it in the real world. So those first couple months were extremely frustrating, you know, simple things like just going to the the downtown area and and buying school supplies, like how do you mime I need a spiral notebook? Like it it was... (laughs) very difficult. But beyond that, I loved it. I think that the people uh, of South America have just tremendous energy. They're they're really very happy. Um, and it's, it's a definitively different place. And, you know, when you travel abroad, that's what I, I look for is places that really feel like you've gone somewhere.
0: Yeah, I was in Florence for about four months, kind of a superficial experience. But to bring it back to sports, so are you who are the teams that you follow? Are you a New York sports fan? Have you come accustomed to rooting for Boston sports now that you've been here for a while? Or who do you root for right now?
1: So I came to Boston in 1990. That's when I started at Boston University as a freshman. And I basically haven't left uh, since then. Unlike probably every single other person who's on 98.5, I did not grow up sports fan. I went to my first game in Yankee Stadium. I went to a handful of games at the Astrodome when I lived there. But for the most part, I played Little League, not well. I ran track in high school, but I didn't really follow New York sports or Houston sports all that much. And I came to college and came to Boston not really being a sports fan. And the first time that I really kind of fell in love with sports was basically as an adult in my 20s, the 1995 Red Sox. And I I can't even tell you why, but there was something about I, I was living really near Fenway Park and I would go and, you know, after work and I would buy a $6 single ticket and I would walk into the park and, you know, I would roam around the park and, you know, find the best seats. And as long as you're willing to stand up, if somebody showed up and it wasn't you know, sold out every night the way it had been of late. Right. Um, So that was the team I fell in love with, was the Red Sox. So despite my having grown up in New York predominantly, I became a sports fan in Boston. So to answer your question, I root for the Boston teams, Patriots, Celtics, Bruins, uh, and Red Sox. I kind of have a thing for the New Jersey Devils only because they're the only team left that calls themselves New Jersey anything. Um, so I got a little thing for them, but honestly, it's, it's the Boston teams that I'm rooting for.
0: And as I mentioned, you've been at 95, the sports hub for a while as, as well as WHDH. So if you didn't grow up as a passionate sports fan, how did you wind up at 95, the sports hub? I know you had some radio experience and TV experience, but how did you wind up as part-time of your job talking about sports?
1: So my first job, you know, coming out of college, I decided I wanted to be a TV reporter, which is not something that I ever actually did. Um, But I I shouldn't say I never did. I never did for real, I'll say. I worked for local cable, which actually was kind of robust back then. Um, They were actually paying, not well-paying, but paying jobs doing like Lowell Channel 3 and Lawrence Channel 3. And I had one of those, and in working one of those, I ran into a guy who was producing a baseball program for local cable, and we had full access to Fenway Park. So I started doing that kind of as a side to doing the news thing, and that's when I really got into the sports side of reporting. And so at that point, I was doing that. I was actually That same guy uh, eventually bought the rights to the Spanish-language Red Sox broadcasts, and I worked for him. I actually ran the Spanish broadcast for the Red Sox for a couple years uh, in the early 2000s, traveled with the team. But all of that combined together basically moved me away from predominantly reporting about news to reporting about sports. I then went to work for a company that basically doesn't exist anymore, called Metro Networks. And they did traffic reporting predominantly, but also news and weather. And this is notable, they did the sports flashes for WEEI. So I went to work there as a traffic reporter, uh, mostly, uh, but that's where I met John Wallach for the first time. And John Wallach was doing flashes for EEI and was the Metro Sports Director. So I did my first flash for WEEI, I think in... 1999 or something like that. And then throughout the next decade, I was doing weekends and filling in. And I eventually moved up into the management structure of that company. So I wasn't on the air as much anymore. But I always kind of kept my my toes in the WEI part of it. Um, but then the Sports Hub was born. And my first introduction to them was when I was at Metro as a manager, Uh, they became a client of ours and we did some work for the sports hub. And so that's how I got to know Mike Thomas. Um, Eventually that company was bought by an evil company that fired everyone, including me. And one of my first emails was to Mike Thomas basically saying, Hey, I'm out here. I don't, I don't have any work right now. And he literally emailed me in under two minutes and said, I don't know what I can give you, but I can give you some part-time work here at the Sports Hub. And so that was almost, I guess, eight years ago, uh, wow. and I've basically been there ever since. That's a wild story,
0: and you can have a thought of where you might end up, but it does seem like a lot of times one thing leads to the next, and in your case, it seems like that. I had Hardy on from 985, from Zolak and Bertram, for those who don't know, as well, earlier on in my, the podcast series, and he was out doing rock radio, and it just ended up that he – move to doing sports. So it does seem like a lot of it is unconventional. And yours, it seems like an unconventional case. Do you remember your first time on air at 985 The Sports Hub? Do you remember if you were nervous or how it went?
1: Uh, I, I, I'll admit I don't remember exactly. I know the first time I, I worked a paid shift no, it was what they, and I think they still do this, though they rarely hire new people at this point. The first time you get paid to be there, you're not, not actually on air, you shadow somebody else. So I sat uh-huh. with Chuck Perks on the DA show back then. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'll admit, I don't remember whenever my first shift was. Surely it was a weekend, and I think I actually started working there in November or December of whatever year that would be. Um, so I'll bet you it was during a holiday. Uh I'd like to say that I was nervous, with the exception of the fact that I'd already been in broadcast for like right. more than a decade at that point. So, uh, and in fact, I'd kind of left it because as I'd moved up in the the management and was basically running that other company, I would left broadcast behind. So, it was it was exciting to get back into it, and it was something that I'd kind of thought was behind me at that point. But I don't think I was probably very nervous because again, I I'd, I'd done a lot of it by that point.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're one of the best arguers of all of the 985 the Sports Up hosts. I watch and listen to Felgrimaz all the time, and when you're on, you really bring your A game. I give you a lot of credit. They call you Take NATO for a reason, and it almost seems like you're on a mission to debate those guys when you go on. Is that the case, or what's your thought process when you go on that show in particular?
1: Well, I, I mean, he, I. I'll tell you this. I don't ever argue a point that I don't believe in. So yeah, if it absolutely. happens that I agree with them, then I'll be more than happy to agree with them. It just so happens I don't, <laughs> really right. w- with Mike Felger, uh, agree with him as often uh, as I could. And the thing of it is, I feel like you know there are times when I listen to the program too. When I drive home, I don't listen to it all the time, but I listen to it enough. And there are times when I'm like, boy, i I almost want to call in and I'm like, well, no, I that's not a thing I do. You know, that's, that's, uh, but then I, I specifically remember, I don't know, within the last year or so, there was something that they were on and I was really annoyed. And then I remembered, wait, I'm on this show in three days. So I'm just going to wait. Uh, and in fact, it, it turned into like a 15 minute diatribe of me yelling about that yep. at them about just, can you be happy? Can you enjoy the that. You know, and, and that really came out of me in the framework of being a guy who in my past life would have called into the show. But I'm like, well, now I have this opportunity. So there are times when I feel like I'm arguing for the listeners. I'm arguing for the fans, because if you call in, you get what, 20 seconds and they have the power to hang up on you. I, I guess they have the power to shut off my mic. But when I'm in the room, I have the ability to really kind of make that case. Um, and so that 's what I see myself doing. I also think that there there is something that the the people on Twitter who hate me so much one of the <laughs> things that they always hate everyone is, is, well i 'm old right i 'm one of the older guys of of all the headline guys other than Wallach. I think I am the oldest i 'm Hardy who knows but uh, certainly old and i 've been around for a while i 've been in Boston media now for more than twenty five years I think at this point. Mike Felger is only a couple years older than I. He and I went to college together. I don't, we didn't know each other then, but we overlapped at some point. All of this is to say I'm not intimidated by Mike Felger. Right. And I think that there are other people who sit in that seat. I love them all, and this is not a criticism of them, but I just don't care. Like, if he's going to yell at me, I don't care. And I'm not intimidated by him. And I think that that helps in arguing with him because he is so good at what he does. <laughs> he will argue until he is blue in the face and he will try to defeat you. And it can be exhausting and it can be tiring, but I won't give up either. And so when I sit down there, that's part of it as well, that I don't care. He can yell at me all he wants. I'm still going to make my point.
0: And how is your relationship with Felger or other sports sub personalities? Are there specific ones that you're closer to than others? Do you mind sharing that?
1: Uh, I I mean, there are none that I, I, I am more closer to. I will say this, and I've I've said this publicly, and I think maybe people sometimes don't uh, believe me when I do. I've worked a lot of places. I've never worked a place like the Sports Hub where everyone, I think, genuinely likes each other. Like You know, off the air, it is the same environment, probably a little bit quieter, but the same environment that you hear on the air. It's not fake. And I never worked in the studios of WEEI, but I get a sense from the people who did that you know, what you hear from them, at least what you used to hear from them. I don't really know them that well now, but it's not the same as what you would hear off the air. Right. And there were a lot of people, and this has been well documented, that did not get along there. And I just don't experience that at the Hub. I really think right. everyone likes each other. I have obviously, I think, worked more with Felger and Baz than I have with the other shows. Um, I've done The Morning Show enough times. I know both Fred and Rich, but I think I maybe work with them I don't know, three times a year, five times a year, something like that. I can't remember the last time I did the midday show, but Mark Bertrand actually worked for me over at Metro. I put him on EEI back then. So he and I go back a little bit. Oh, it's and funny. I don't go back with Scott Zolek, but Scott Zolek and I get along pretty well. So I like them all, and I've worked with Adam Jones a bunch too. Um, but I guess I probably work more with the afternoon show than any of the rest of them. And I'm happy to do it.
0: It does seem like the 95 hosts and workers get along very well. And at EEI, you're right. And you hear about it a lot in terms of the feuds. And you never really hear that at 985. But your rant, by the way, I believe it was August 10, 2018, because I looked at it before doing a little research for the podcast. And you basically told Felger and Maz to, to, quote, cure the F up. Exactly. It was at least four minutes. And I think I heard a round of applause. I don't know if it was Jimmy or Felger. Or I think Maz wasn't in that day. But you basically complain they don't enjoy the games in the sport and they basically take the fun out of it. And I listen to the show and I love the show, but you're absolutely right, especially at certain times when they have a big win and they may talk about the negative. Was that something that was a long time coming or were you just fed up that week?
1: I, I mean, I think it was probably a long time coming. It's not the first time I even talked to them right. about it. It just it, it happened to be and, – and I think it – I don't even remember what sport was going on. I think it might have been a baseball season – but it, it was this attitude that they basically had that not only, you know, is it not fun for us, not that they use those words, but if you think it's fun to watch, then you're wrong too. And I'm like, you know, this <laughs> right. this whole thing, this whole thing that we do on the radio and the thing that we're talking about in sports, it's all there for entertainment. And so, yes, not every season ends in a championship. Hard to believe here in Boston, but not every season ends with that. And that doesn't mean, though, that you need to crap all over season, You can go to a Red Sox game and enjoy that game within the framework of that evening. You can go to a Celtics game and do the same thing. And just because over the long run, whatever your problem is, is that problem, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy it in that moment. I mean, Felger actually says it. He talks about working in the, I think he says something like the candy store of life. And it's true. We are not dealing most of the time with what I'll call real issues. My normal nine to five, six AM to 3 PM job is working in the television newsroom at channel seven. And I see all sorts of nightmarish, crappy stuff there on a daily basis. And so for me, going to work at the sports hub is a relief from that. And so when when these guys sometimes get into that mode where like, they hate everything, it may come from you know a bounce back of working in a newsroom and being like, you really want to work in a place where you can hate everything? Go read some police reports. Go listen to some of these tapes. Watch some of this video that I see that never makes it to the air. And then remember that you guys are talking about sports. And that's probably what I was, was reacting to as much as anything.
0: Well, I do think if it was not the best rant of all my years listening, it was up there with one of the most epic rants. So, well done. A couple more questions, then I'll let you go very quickly because it is Halloween. And I appreciate you taking the time, especially on 5 o'clock in the evening. So, you've been in the industry a long time now. What is your take on the current sports media industry? Because, as we all know, it's been changing. It's changing with social media, even with the dead spin news. That's been happening. It just seems like it's in constant flux and it seems like it's a really transitioned state. But what's your take on it? Because you've been in it so long.
1: Well, I, I mean, I, we work in like my the main reason you and I are talking is I work in radio. And I've been working in radio now for all of this time. And this entire time, people have been telling me that radio is a dying medium, right? Right. It certainly hasn't died uh, uh, yet. And newspapers theoretically are as well. But what has been born as evidenced by the fact that you and I are sitting here talking on my computer is you know with the internet and with uh, all of that new media it really gives opportunity that didn't exist before now you know there are a lot of people out there doing stuff and putting it out there and it you know each individual say podcast or blog or what have you may not have the listenership or viewership of bigger things, but can, you know, when you combine it all together, I mean, how many different websites did you visit today? How many different right. you know Twitter accounts did you check out? How many different things did you listen to? Whereas ten years ago, twenty years ago, you, that answer would be two or four. And for me, I don't, I don't know. I've probably been on thirty different websites today. So, it, are there opportunities in the same way that there were before? No, they're not. But you do have more of a chance to make your own opportunities than you ever did before. I couldn't force myself onto radio. I couldn't force myself onto TV. But if I wanted to now, I can pick up my iPhone and record myself doing something and put it on the internet. Whether or not anyone looks at it, whether or not I make any money doing it, those are separate questions. But I can at least produce content anytime I want, if I want, and at least put it out there where people can watch it if they want. And so I think that is good. A lot of it is crap, to be clear, and in many ways, there's a bad side to it, but on the whole, we'll go with it's good.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think for some 24, for someone coming out of college, obviously, it's hard to get a lot of viewers, but in terms of gaining experience and being able to do things, I think it's a lot easier now for someone like me than someone back in the day when you have the internet. I can create my own podcast or I can write my own blog where you would need the job to get the actual experience.
1: Yeah, this is why I worked in community cable, because it was a place that, without leaving the greater Boston area, I could work. Uh, and there was a big part of me when that kind of disappeared, because there was, a, I think, a period when these two things didn't exist, like the, the community cable stuff went away, right. and the internet stuff hadn't really picked up, and I don't know where people went to do stuff, because I basically went to work for that, you know, initially for free, and then for very, very little money, but it gave me a chance to produce stuff and it gave me a chance to build a reel. It gave me a chance to do stuff professionally that eventually led to a more real job. you know. And this now, this kind of thing that you and I are doing right now, that is your version of what I did 20 years ago. And maybe it'll lead to something bigger and better. And you'll be able to do this in 20 years and say, well, I used to have this <laughs> thing that we called a podcast. And you know, now you guys just I don't know do whatever you think your thoughts and they go out. Of <laughs> so i i mean i guess there will always be that form of whatever that opportunity is but you still have to have the the stick to to go and do it so if i can sound like an old man i would say that you got to do you can't just kind of do it and when you want to do it you know do it half acidly if you're going to do it you got to do it for real
0: absolutely well on that note marshall thank you so much for joining me make sure to follow marshall hook on twitter At Marshall Hook, especially thanks for coming on during Halloween. I really appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you. Thanks again to Marshall Hook for joining the podcast. It was great to talk to him as it is great to talk to all my guests, and I really appreciate him coming on. As I mentioned, it is Halloween, so I, again, appreciate him for taking the time on his Thursday evening. But yesterday, Wednesday night, the Nationals defeated the Astros In the World Series, Game 7, and I think everyone was happy to see the Astros get defeated. It's a very cocky team. They were the favorite. It's obviously a tough look for Bryce Harper. I was joking about it with my friends, and one of my friends mentioned who had the worst night, Bryce Harper or the Astros, and it is a tough look for Bryce. He leaves, and the team wins the World Series, but I'm just very happy for Steven Strasburg, a guy who had so much potential out of the draft, and he got hurt. And I thought he was never going to be the same guy again, but it was really good to see him get back to his old self and pitch just phenomenally in the playoffs. But as with all World Series, there's been a lot of debate whether the managers are making the right moves, keeping the starting pitchers in or out or taking them out earlier, the bullpen guys. And Felger Maz were talking about it today in that a lot of times these MLB managers are going based off the analytics specifically, and their fear is that guys don't have a feel for the game anymore. And I wanted to use their discussion to bring up the discussion of analytics in general, which I really haven't discussed too much on my podcast. I've talked about it with Greg Carton a little bit, sports psychologist I had early on in the podcast series. I talked about it a little bit with the hypnotist, about the clutch gene and being streaky and hot, but I want to talk about it again here. First of all, I want to preface this discussion by saying I am very pro-analytic. I think anyone who is against analytics, it's kind of a dumb thing to say because at a certain point, numbers are very important, and to just completely ignore analytics or numbers that are going to help you decide what to do in a certain situation is totally dumb. For example... If you know that a hitter is batting 110 against pitches in the bottom part of the plate or in the lower corner, then you should attack him in that spot if it's a large enough sample size. Or if, if a hitter is 200 against curveballs, but 400 against fastballs, something simple like that, obviously you attack a guy with a curveball. And it depends on different situations, and there is nuance, and it might depend on the righty or the lefty, but a lot of times the analytics also allows for that as well. So to completely ignore analytics or to not use analytics to the best of your ability is ridiculous. And how analytics have changed the NBA in basketball is that many times people are either going to the hoop and getting to the free throw line or they're shooting threes. And there's a reason for that. And statistically, based on analytics, the deep two, a contested deep two, is the worst shot in basketball. Based on the percentage of the times it will go in and the fact they only get two points... And the points per possession is, it's not as useful to take a deep two than it would be a three. And that has changed the game. Now teams only shoot threes or they go for easy hoops. Now, there are certain players where that does change, and this is where the nuance comes in. For example, Ray Allen, 15 feet, is absolutely money. Whereas other guys from 15 feet or contested from 15 feet, it's probably not a smart shot. So again, that is specific, but that is just a case where analytics have shown, and I agree with, that it's better to shoot a wide open three, or it's better to shoot a three than take one step in and shoot a two. Either get to the hoop and get a good shot, get a little bit closer, shoot the three. Now, where analytics goes too far, and this is what Felger Ramaz' point was when they're saying that managers don't have a feel for the game, is that... Analytics gives you the information, but it doesn't explain the information. For example, you may see behavior, but the behavior is just sets of data points. And you don't have anyone explaining the reasons for that data. So someone who is into statistics or baseball analytics or basketball would say that there's no such thing as the "the clutch gene. There's no such thing as guys who are better or worse under pressure. Or guys who are into analytics would say there's no such thing as being hot whether it's on a hitting streak or playing basketball and to make it a little bit simpler they're discounting any sort of mental effect on the game the thought of what's going on in your head isn't being represented in the data it's just a random sequence of events someone may be better in late situations because it's just who they play against it's a random sequence of events they happen to do well in that situation or we may think someone is hot or on a hot streak shooting the ball Or hitting, but it's just another random sequence of events. And to me, this is so ridiculous. I think most people would think this is so ridiculous. And this gets to behaviorism with psychology, which really looks at behavior and is really not thinking about how the mental cognition can affect your actual behavior. And I think if anyone doubts the power of the mind on performance, the mind on the physical is ridiculous. In my opinion, there absolutely is a clutch team. Certain people in certain situations will get psyched out by the big moment. That's why coaches will call timeouts during big kicks. And oftentimes, kickers will miss it. Statisticians will say that it's just a random sequence of events. But to think that a big moment will not affect some more than others is ridiculous. While other athletes like Tom Brady thrive in those moments. And to think that an athlete like that is not absolutely locked in and confident and his belief wouldn't help him play better is ridiculous. Think of the placebo effect. When you think you're going to feel better, oftentimes you feel better. That's why there are studies for when they have drugs, because the mental affects the physical. Look at hitting streaks in baseball. To say that Chris Davis, who's in a slump and is hitless for however many at bats, to think that is not in his head into random sequence of events is ridiculous. And not only that... But there are certain physical changes you make once it gets in your head. Think of the yips. Someone physically cannot throw back to the catcher, back to first base. They change the throwing motion. The mental had such a huge effect on the physical. And from myself as a psychology major, the fact that baseball analytics doesn't account for that to me is a huge problem. So going forward, and I don't know if they have these guys or not, but a combination of Psychologists in sports analytics and having managers understand that, and coaches in the NBA understand it. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But Felger Maz's critique, and I think it's a pretty good one, in that a lot of these former players are becoming managers. And their question is without much managerial experience, how are they doing that? And the answer to that was they're relying on analytics. And this gets back to how I started this conversation, which nowadays managers are often going with the analytics. Solely to go for pitchers in big spots, when to throw certain guys, and to a certain point it helps, but at a certain point as well, you have to understand how certain players might do in certain situations, when guys might get nervous, if someone's on a hot streak, and to discount that altogether is insane to me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to check out my other episodes on the Wicked Local North of Boston website or on my social media accounts. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robbie the Kitcher for the latest podcast information. Thanks so much for listening.